Good morning. Ooh, pull out your Bibles. Something you can take notes with. Praise the Lord. Oh, thank you, God. Nothing like it. Nothing like baptisms. Somebody messed with my thing here. That ain't right. You shouldn't do that to a pastor, you know what I'm saying? We are, uh, wow, so good. <clears throat> I'm way too amped up to move on right now, but we have to. It's just so good. So proud of everybody getting baptized. I love the end seeing those six men around the baptismal. All right. Come on, Andrew. Preach the gospel. Okay. We're continuing our psalm series. Jumping in. We're continuing our psalm series that we started last week. Go ahead and open up to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. I'm praying over these a few weeks that uh, as we go through the Psalms, your soul is, is captured and stirred and inflamed and healed and directed by the Word of God as we get into these poems and these songs written by people of God over the course of a thousand years to connect with God and for God to connect with them and for us to connect with God and God to connect with us. It's just there's nothing like it in the whole world. I want to read you um, a quote that I read last week that just is a beautiful quote from uh, a Bible teacher named Landon McDonald that I think is just a great primer as we get in to the Psalms. I read it to you last week, but I'm going to read it again as we continue. He says this, don't fall into the trap thinking that these are just songs. These are the quick writings of kings on the run, the time-tested meditations of men who stood face to face with the one they sang to, the patient poems of temple singers waiting to hear the sound of their voices echo in the majesty of Solomon's temple, and the anonymous verses of battle-worn men of faith spilling their life and love onto the page, inspired by the Holy Spirit to inspire the people of God for thousands of years." The Psalms are a mystical haze of veneration. It's a place to get lost in. Suitable for all temperaments, personality types, and moods. Brings your, bring your fears here and leave with trust. Bring your sorrows here and leave heard. Bring your victories here and lay them at the true victor's feet. Bring your heart here and see it utilized to its true and only potential praise. Hallelujah. We are uh, kind of following an outline each week of this series, and I'm hoping that this helps you fall in love with the book of Psalms, but also have a little bit more of a grasp on the book of Psalms for you to be reading it for yourself. The way we're doing that is we've broken it into, broken the whole book into five themes that Psalms cover, and sort of you can kind of categorize all of them there. So last week we talked about wisdom to read out of Psalm 1. And this week, we're doing Psalm 2. We're not doing the whole book in order, but we are doing Psalm 2 this week, and we are doing Psalm 3 next week, but it's still not in order somehow. <laughs> so last week was wisdom to read. This week is regal prophecies. Regal prophecies is the category that we're going to be dealing with this morning. Each week, we're going to be talking about 
one, uh, a poetic tool that is used in the Hebrew poetry to help us see what's going on in the beauty of the art of the poetry and the songs of the Psalms. That One, because it's beautiful, but it also is going to help you understand and engage more with what's going on. Last week we talked about metaphors and similes, something obviously we're very familiar with. This week we're going to be talking about a concept called inclusio. We're going to get to that in a second. And then each week uh, after that, I'm going to teach you through one of the Psalms this week, Psalm 2. We good on that? I am going to pray for us before we read. I know that's something very new. We usually read first. But I want to pray for us, and then I'm going to kind of give us an introduction into Psalm 2, and then we're going to read it because I think it's, it's uh, helpful to sometimes put the right glasses on and then read it. Does that make sense? So that's what, that's what we're going for. So... Uh, Let me pray for us as we get started this morning. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time together. Thank you for this gift of baptism that you gave us to celebrate this new life. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence with us this morning. We thank you for church. We thank you for this rhythm of being together every Sunday to remember you, to be together, to lift up your name, to sit under your word and your instruction and to respond to you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that every heart in this room would be open to the word of God. I pray that we would all humble ourselves right now under your mighty hand, that you might lift us up and structure us and and, uh, shape us by your word. Lord, I pray that we would be ready to respond that right now we would just put ourselves again at the altar and say, come Holy Spirit, teach us. We want to know you. We want to follow you. We want to be your people. We love you. We're so thankful for today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so the Psalms as regal prophecies, kingly prophecies. The book of Psalms as a whole, isn't necessarily about Jesus in total, but there are a lot of psalms about Jesus. There are a lot of psalms that are, that are prophesying about Jesus. And this is fascinating, and you're going to kind of have to follow me here because this is a little bit mind-blowing. So if it is mind-blowing, you're probably hearing it right, good. if that makes sense. So if you, if you think about what the psalms are, especially when it comes to these prophecies about Jesus and his lordship. What, what you have in this category is you have poems and, and prayers that were written by people about themselves or about their nation. That's what, that's what these psalms were, right? Like a person sat down and wrote this poem or wrote this prayer, and it was about himself or herself. It was, it was like, this is what's going on in me or in my nation, Are you you tracking? Are we good so far? So that's what they are. They're they're just a person praying for for the person's own sake. But it's also scripture. So God used it and under his inspiration in that moment and over time now to take an individual's personal honest prayer to God and basically... The person's honest, personal prayer to God was actually inspired by God. And it was in, they're praying to meet with God, but God inspired the prayer to not just help them meet with God, but to help God meet with them. And then, because we have it in scripture, it's inspired by God for you. 
to teach you how to pray so you can connect with God, which really is God connecting with you. So that's like all the Psalms. The regal prophecies, though, additionally, in the midst of all of that, you take that, and then you realize this personal prayer prayed by a real person for himself was actually inspired by God to help this person connect with God, which was really God connecting with them, and inspired that prayer to teach you how to pray to connect with God, which is really God connecting with you, and it was also God prophesying about himself about what, what he himself was going to do at some point a thousand years later. And then some of them were then quoted by Jesus as he did what was prophesied that he would do. Okay, so Psalm 22, for example. Psalm 22, verse 1. Oh, I didn't write it down. Are you going to have? Okay, perfect. <laughs> this may sound familiar. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Anybody heard, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me before? Jesus shouts this on the cross as he dies for us. So Psalm 22.1, the psalmist is praying to God about God forsaking him. But the prayer is actually inspired by the God who is near to the psalmist. To help the psalmist pray to the God who he thinks is far away. And that prayer inspired by God for the psalmist was inspired by God for you and for me. So that the God who we feel like is far away sometimes would actually be so near that he's teaching us to pray about how we think he's far away. And the honest prayer that he prays to God is also a prophecy about God. So God puts the prayer in the heart to pray to God. The prayer is from God. It's for the psalmist to pray for God, for himself. And it's also from God to teach us how to pray to God for ourselves, which is really God teaching us to pray for God's sake. And the prayer that God gave the psalmist to pray for himself that was really for you, that was really for God, was also about God and about what God would do. And then the script for God incarnate to speak as he did what the psalmist prophesied that God would do. And then it all happened. It's like, it's like a book written about a movie that's a TV show with a character who plays himself watching a movie, reading a book about a TV show. It's like, there's nothing like this in all the world. There, there, there has never been anything written like this in the history of humanity, and there never ever will be ever again. There is nothing like this book. There is nothing like these words. It's stunning. It's alive. It's gorgeous. We could spend hours on this stuff, but we're not going to. We're going to keep going for this morning. So that's Regal Prophecies. Book within a movie about a TV show about a book and a poem. And a... That's, what, that's what they are. That, that's your summary right there. The tool that I want to talk to you about in uh, Hebrew literature that is really, really fascinating and adds even more beauty and texture 
to the words is this tool inclusio. And I forgot to put it on a slide so you can guess how to spell it. <laughs> inclusio. So inclusio is, is basically, it's using um, ideas or, or phrasing to bracket big thoughts. So you'll find as you read through the Psalms, if, you, if you're looking for inclusios, you'll find some phrase said, and then all of a sudden you'll, you'll read it again later, and what you'll find is, oh, this is like a, these are like bookends. The phrase at the beginning and the phrase at the end are the same, and so everything in the middle is dealing with the phrase. It's an explanation. It's an expounding on the phrase that's being used. So we see this happen in Psalm, Psalms 1 and 2. So I told you last week that Psalm 1 serves as an introduction in a lot of ways to the book of Psalms, and that's true, but it gets better. Psalm 2 is like part 2 of the introduction. Psalm 1 contrasts the path of blessing with the path of an individual who goes against God, and that really sets the tone for a lot of the book of Psalms. Psalms 2, or Psalm 2, contrasts the path of blessing with the path of a nation or with the peoples of the earth who reject God. So there's like a micro introduction in Psalm 1 and a macro introduction in Psalm 2, but it's the same idea. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the man. It's, it's the individual. That's the micro level introduction. Psalm 2, verse 12, so that's the very first verse of Psalm 1. Then the very last verse of Psalm 2 ends with this phrase, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So blessed are all. Blessed are all. Blessed is everyone. In the macro, blessed, are ev- blessed is everyone who takes refuge in him. And that is the inclusio that we see in Psalm, the beginning of Psalm 1 to the end of Psalm 2. So they are separate, but they work together. And they expand on this idea of what does it mean to walk in the blessing of God? How do I be the person under the blessing of God? How do we be the people under the blessing of God? And I think that's impressive. So we're going to read Psalm 2 here in just a second. And originally, to kind of get into the layers that we're talking about, so originally this was probably used as kind of a ceremonial psalm that was maybe read at like the coronation ceremony of a king of Israel or, and or like an annual celebration of the king, kind of the annual long live the king, go the king type of a, type of a ceremony or celebration. So it was originally written to be about the king of Israel, but in the rest of the Old Testament, we're not going to get into all of this today, but the king of Israel represented or, or was to the earth and to the people was God's king. So Psalm 2 is about Israel's king, who is a shadow of God's king, who is Jesus. And it prophesies about God's king, who is Jesus, who then would come and fulfill the prophecies about him that were inspired by the Holy Spirit and written by people about Jesus, about the king of Israel, but about Jesus, who is the exact representation of the Father. So now that we're clear as mud on that, and that makes perfect sense. 
Again, like I said, if you're like, wait, that's crazy. Exactly. I've never heard anything like, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like this. We get to read it. Go ahead and stand. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Also, I meant to give a disclaimer. This is so intense. Like, I know we read psalms, poems. Oh, it's going to be precious. Well, like we talked about last week, this is, is this precious and encouraging? It kind of depends. Depends whose side you're on. So now that you've been warned with that, let's read the Bible. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. So let's just take this kind of phrase by phrase, verse by verse. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Psalm 2, it starts off with these two questions. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? This word rage could also be translated conspire. Why is it that the nations are conspiring? They're raging. Why is it that the people are plotting in vain? They're plotting, they're scheming, and they're doing it in vain. We can read in vain, and, and rightly we could read that to say they're plotting in a way that will fail. Like it's, it's right, they're, they're plotting in vain, it's not going to succeed. And that's true, but there's, there's another kind of layer to the way that it's originally written. It's not just that their, their plotting is going to fail. An additional point that's also being made is that they're, that they're actually plotting like under vanity, like it. It's in vanity. What I mean by that is, uh, do you have anybody who's read Pilgrim's Progress before? Any, anybody actually remember any of it? No. Mark Frazee, Simon, y'all reading it right now? Okay, so in Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory, and there's this man, Christian, and, and, and the, the whole story, it's an allegory of the, the journey of the Christian life. And so the, the main character's name is Christian. 
And uh, he, he's a stirring in his heart, and he's called out of the city of destruction, and he heads out on a journey towards the celestial city. If your appetite has been wet, just read the book. Oh, it's so good. So he's on this journey, and he faces all this stuff, and it's stunning. Okay, I'm not going to go into the history of Pilgrim's Progress. All right. He goes on this journey, and one of the places that he has to go through is, uh, called, is a city called Vanity. The city is called Vanity. And the whole city, the activity of the city is a, is a never-ending fair, and it's called Vanity Fair. And the book goes into saying that, that the, 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 the fair was built on the road to the celestial city, in the past by the enemy of the one who is the king in the celestial city because the enemy kept seeing people on their journey towards the celestial city go on this road and he wanted to build something that would knock them off their path. And so he built this city and called it Vanity and made it a never-ending party. And it goes into description about saying like basically this this fair, it's it's never-ending and uh, the summary is essentially it's where things are constantly sold and celebrated and encouraged the things of the flesh, the things of carnality, temporal things. It's just that's the momentum. That's what this party is all about. Let's all buy and sell and celebrate and engage with all the temporal things, all the carnal things. These are the good things. These are what we're going for. This is what we want to live for. You have to go through Vanity Fair. And and Psalm 2 is saying they're plotting in that vanity. Like, it's in that. It's for that. It's of that. Augustine spoke of the the earthly city versus the contrast of the eternal city of God. And this is a contrast in Psalm 2 of this is part of the road we have to walk, is that as Christians we are walking in the way and we're walking towards the things of God, but we have to pass through the city of carnality, the city of temporary, the city of the flesh. We have to go through Vanity Fair where the nations are raging at us about vanity. The peoples are plotting. How do we, how do we, get, how do we capture the, the, journey, the journeymen in vanity? Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Psalm 1 asks the same question in a different way when it says, Why would a man, why, why, do, why does a man, why would a man follow the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners? And sit in the seat of scoffers. And Psalm 2 says, why? Why, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Verse 2 says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Here we start to get an answer to the question, why do people do this? Why do the nations do this? Verse 2 tells us they do it because the people over them do it. The nations rage because the kings of the earth set themselves. The peoples plot in vain because their rulers take counsel together. The nations and the peoples, they're just just following the people that they follow. So that's why they do it. Because the people they follow do this. Why are people wicked? Because they walk in the counsel of the wicked. Why do people sin? Because they stand in the way of sinners. Why do people scoff at God and the things of God? Because they fellowship with and make community with scoffers. That's why they do it. So we have nations raging, peoples plotting in vain. 
the Bible encouraging as usual. We've learned it's because the kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Against what? Against who? Verse 2 finishes. Against the Lord and against his anointed. Against the Lord and against his anointed. Not just against the things of God, but actually against God and against his anointed. So what we're talking about here in Psalm 2 aren't just people who have made some mistakes or who are trying but, but aren't doing it perfectly. What we're talking about are, are those who set themselves, set themselves against God and against his anointed. If you listen to the Honest Conversations with my pastor episode from this week, we talked about having a set mind. That, that Romans 8 tells us that we are either going to set ourselves towards the things of the Spirit or set ourselves towards the flesh. And Psalm 2 now is reinforcing that idea. It's painting a picture for us of the, heart, of the human heart. Those who set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Those who in their heart, they say, I don't want God or his anointed. I don't want God or his kingdom. I don't want God or his people. I don't want God or his ways. I want vanity. That's what I want. And in their conspiring together, in their speaking together, what is it that they're saying? What does is, what is their rage sound like? What does the conspiracy sound like? What does the human heart say as it sets itself against the Lord and against his anointed? Verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Their desire is to Tear away from God. Tear away from his kingdom. Tear away from his ways. See, the, the Father, the Father is, is aiming to unify his people under the reign of his Son by the Holy Spirit. That, that's God's agenda. The Father is trying to unify us under the reign of his Son by his Spirit. But the enemy is dividing. The enemy is dividing by calling peoples and the nations of the earth to endless individualism and to setting themselves against God. This is the contrast that we begin to get in Psalm chapter 2. The enemy is, is calling the peoples of the earth, calling the nations of the earth calling the kings, calling the rulers, calling everybody, break against the boundaries of the Lord and his anointed. Break free. Cast away his limitations on you. Cast away his restraint. Cast away his discipline. Cast away the order of God and of his kingdom. See, God has a kingdom. God has a king. It means something to be under that reign, to live in that kingdom. But the raging of the peoples, the conspiring of the nations, 
and of the human heart, what, what it sounds like, what does it sound like when they set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed? It sounds like, let's not recognize his rule or authority. Let's, let's break his bonds off of us. Let's shatter his cords off of us. Let's, let's not recognize his authority or his rule. Let's not recognize his supremacy or his power. Let's not recognize those that he delegates authority to in order that they might establish his rule and implement and build his kingdom. Let's not appreciate or let's not respect his chosen people. Let's not respect his ways. Let's not respect his goal. Let's not respect his will. Let's not reject his, or let's reject his instruction. I wonder this morning if you have recently heard the sound of the nations raging and the people's plotting in vain. I wonder if this sounds familiar to you. I wonder if you might know the sound of Vanity Fair. I wonder if you might be familiar with the voices of the earthly city. Have you heard what it sounds like when the kings set themselves and the rulers take counsel together? Let's, let's set ourselves against God and live our own truth. Let's reject God's ways and chase our dreams. Let's forget God and his king and follow our hearts. Let's scoff at God and his anointed so that we can free ourselves from this cosmic tyranny and fully love and exalt and celebrate and actualize our most true and authentic selves. Have you heard the sound? Well, God hears it too. And in verse 4, he responds to the noise by calmly explaining that they need to change their ways and follow him. He responds by patiently waiting until they decide on their own terms to change. And he sends them angels to change their minds. And in the end, he doesn't really mind all that much because he loves them. And he's just glad that they're happy. And besides, there's just grace in the end. <laughs> he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. There goes God again, not fitting into the boxes we've built for him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. If you're wondering what kind of laugh we're talking about here, the word derision helps give us some context that means mockery and ridicule. A mocking and ridiculing laugh thunders from heaven as the nations rage. Let's cast their bonds off. In verse 4, Psalm 2 calls us to hear a more mighty sound over the rage of Vanity Fair. Psalm 2 calls us to turn our ear and hear from the throne in heaven that is surrounded by the sea of crystal as the angels, elders, and creatures eternally bow down and cry out, holy, 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 almighty God's ridiculing laughter as he bellows, you think you're smarter than me? You think you're better than me? 
think you're more loving than me? You think you've outgrown your need for me? You think you can test me? Chastise me? Rage against me? Conspire against me without consequence? You think you can set yourselves against me and my anointed? And that it's going to work? That you're just going to get away with it? And I will sit by and do nothing? As he laughs, holding them in derision. After this deriding laughter, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Saying, you can rage, plot, and take counsel together all you want. As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill. I have set my king on Zion. You can rage all you want. My king, my king, set. Your mind has been set. My king has been set on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 7 continues to the psalmist saying, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now we're talking about this this anointed that has been set on Zion, the holy hill of God. I told you in the Old Testament, and specifically in 2 Samuel 7, if you want to go read it on your own time, makes very clear that the, the king in David's lineage was the designatee of the Lord's authority. And his coronation that the psalm would have potentially originally been read at celebrating this person, this real human king of Israel, the coronation, it was an adoption ceremony. It It was a begetting of the king from God. It was the people receiving the king as authoritative from God. So they're saying, we will come under the Lord by coming under the king. So this is about the king of Israel when the Lord is saying over the anointed king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. But like I said, King David, though he was, he was, a, he was a son of God in that sense, he was to be given the authority of God, to be a leader from God, for God, for God's people. The, the Messiah, the point was that the Messiah was supposed to come from the lineage of David. What that means is that he would be a son of David and sit on David's throne, which was God's throne. You tracking? So the Messiah was to come from the lineage of David so that he could be David's son, so that he could sit on David's throne. But David's throne was a shadow of God's throne. And David was a shadow of God's eternal son. So... The Holy Spirit inspires this ancient cyclical ceremony expressed in a poem that exalts the king of Israel as an act of exalting the eternal reign of God over all the nations. And he's he's reigning, God is reigning eternally over the nations through his eternally begotten son, who was a thousand years yet from being born. But then when he would be baptized... Heaven would open and humanity would hear for the rest of time the eternal declaration of the Father, this is my son. Today I have begotten you. This is my son. This is my anointed. 
This is my king, set on Zion, my holy hill. And the father says to his anointed, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. The nations that rage, the kings who counsel against me, just ask of me and I'll make them yours. Just ask of me and I will give them to you. God, the eternal father and ruler of the universe, eternally begets his eternal son and sets him on the throne of all eternity. And he eternally invites the son, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And just for some bonus points this morning, the son we're talking about, the eternal son, the heir of the nations, is eternally interceding for you to the father, the God of all the nations. And the spirit of God, the father, and the son dwells in you and bears witness to the fact that this is happening by the groans that happen in your soul that are too deep for words. And he empowers you to make disciples of all the nations that he is eternally inheriting and eternally the God of that are also raging against him. But he laughs at them and holds them in derision and says, I have a king set on Zion, my holy hill. I have a kingdom. I have a people set apart who will make disciples of all the nations. God continues speaking to his son in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus isn't just a calm, chill dude on a comfy throne in Psalm 2, is he? The son, the eternal son of God, he is a crusher and destroyer of the enemies of his father. He is perfectly carrying out God's will of the destruction of evil. And he's doing it with this picture of carrying a big piece of metal crushing things like pottery. Now, therefore, oh, it feels like we're about to turn the corner here. Please. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. All you loud kings and rulers and peoples, now that you've heard the thunder of heaven, be wise and be warned. This is that grace we were looking for, right? He said, back a few verses ago, we're like, well, I thought you was patient. He's like, here's the patience right here. Stop. Be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. We see in the natural as the king of Israel was was coronated, they would read this over him, and there was a receiving of God calling to the nations through the through the human king on his throne, calling through David to the nations, warning them about what happens if they stand against God and his kingdom. And in the same way for us and for eternity, this is the mercy of God. Not just verse 10, verses 1 through 9. It is the mercy of God that he tells us exactly how it is. It is the grace of God to paint the picture with perfect clarity. Here's what's really going on. Here's what's really at stake. I want you to see perfectly clearly. It is the mercy of God to show us exactly how it is so that you can repent. So that you can turn around. Because part of the actual picture of reality is that God's not going to change his mind. 
So we must. God is not going to bend to us. We must bend to him. God is not going to bow to us. So we must bow to him. That's exactly how it is. That's the truth. And we need to know it and understand it that we might come in line with it by the grace of God. And it leads to verse 11. Serve the Lord. The plea and invitation to those who have set themselves against God and his anointed and are under the threat of being crushed by Jesus like pottery with a rod of iron. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Don't, don't just, there's no, there's no, you don't just like rage against God and then, okay, well, I'll stop doing that. No, you either, you're either raging against God or you're running towards him. And he's saying, not just stop raging, run to me. Come to me. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, verse 12 says, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Serve the Lord. This is what you do. This is how you should respond to this reality. Serve the Lord and kiss the son lest he be angry. What he's saying, there's this beautiful picture happening where in verses one and two, we see the lips of the people and the rulers and the nations flapping in vanity, and he says, stop your flapping lips and use them to kiss the son instead. Come and bow at his feet. Surrender yourself to him. Submit to his rule in rage. Stop lifting up your voice in rage and come and bow in all reverence and come to him. Blessed are all who take refuge. Come and take refuge in the son. Come and take refuge in the son. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Vanity is the way that perishes, and, in, and his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. You guys can come on up. I didn't realize how long I was going. I'm so sorry. This finishes the inclusio. Happy, happy are all who take refuge in him. The people who rage and get their way of the flesh, they don't turn out very happy. The vanity fair is not a happy place. Blessed, happy are those who follow his voice. Happy are those who come into his kingdom. Happy are those who come and take refuge in him. Happy are those who don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Happy are those who don't stand in the way of sinners. Happy are those who don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Happy are those who delight themselves in the Lord. Happy are those who don't put themselves against God and against his anointed. Happy are the people who don't try to buck his bonds and break his cords, but they wrap themselves up in the boundaries of Jesus. They become chained to righteousness. Happy are those who don't believe the lie that you just need to bust off the chains and do your thing. And Jesus says, no, blessed are those who get freed from the chain of being chained to sin and death and take on the slavery of righteousness. Blessed are those not who free their minds to go wherever they want. Blessed are those who set their minds towards the Lord and his anointed. Serve him. Serve him with fear. Serve him with a love and an awe. You are the one who could destroy the nations, but the one who welcomes me back. You are the one who comes and finds me in Vanity Fair and saves me and sets me free by binding me to yourself. Serve the Lord. Serve this Lord. 
Serve him with a fear that you might run away from him. Fear what it be, would be to serve your flesh again. Fear what it would be to serve the enemy. Fear what it would be to get so distracted that you drift away from him again. Serve him with a fear. Serve him like, oh my God, I could never run away again. But I could. Oh God, have mercy. Bind me with your bonds. Wrap me in your cords. Rejoice in him with a trembling, my friends. Rejoice with him trembling with gratitude, trembling with freedom, trembling knowing that you are fully known and yet still somehow fully loved and tremble at the fact that you might drift again. Tremble at the thought of following under the voice. Tremble at the thought of listening to the rulers of the nations and the kings of the earth. Rejoice in his ways. Kiss the sun. Lay yourself down at his feet. Repent. You can stand. We're going to be done. We got we to gotta worship because God's so good. Prayer team, come on up. You might need prayer today, so come and get it. But all of us, the call today is the call every day. Repent. Yeah. Repent. Turn. Turn. Do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Do not stand in the way of sinners. Do not sit in the seat of scoffers. Do not rage against God. Do not set yourself against him. Be bound to the Lord in his grace and in his mercy. Be bound to the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. Rejoice in Him. Come and take refuge in Him today and every day forward. Come and take refuge in the Son. We've been talking about believing for the Lord to pour Himself out. We've been talking about revival and an expectation in this season. And we can't miss this truth. Revival is repentance. That's what it is. So Lord, we turn our lips to You. We turn our desires towards you. But even then, we can't, Lord. We are weak, and we come and we bow down, Lord. And we rejoice with trembling, Lord. We want to serve you in the fear of God. We want a revelation of you. We're asking, Holy Spirit, bind us to you. Bind us to you in your power. I'm praying that if there be anything that we, any of us need to repent for today, we would do it in the mercy of your conviction. Lord, I'm praying that you would baptize us in the Holy Spirit, that we might walk with you and know you. I'm praying, God, that you would help us break off from Vanity Fair, break off from the earthly city, and set ourselves towards the Lord and his anointed. In Jesus' name, amen.